Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 15 years ago, there were few things funnier than a Flight of the Concords band meeting. And for that, we can thank my guest on this week's show. Okay, band meeting. Jermaine. Yes. Brett. What's wrong with being from New Zealand? Are you picking on Brett again, Jermaine? No, I, I didn't pick on him. It was a. You're from New Zealand as well. Yeah, I know that. Murray present, and I'm from New Zealand. You're insulting me as well. I did, but it wasn't even me that. You're hurting all of us when you bring down New Zealand. Okay, stop it. I, but I didn't pick on him. Tension oh. in the band. Brett upset. All sorted now. Do we have any gigs, Murray, or no? Any band opportunities? This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was Reese Darby as Murray Hewitt with Jermaine Clement and Brett McKenzie on HBO's Flight of the Concords. As I tell Reese on today's episode, that mid 2000s show was an incredibly important one for me, and Murray was always my favorite character on it. Now, the New Zealander comedian is the star of his very own HBO Max series, Our Flag Means Death, created by his longtime collaborator, Taika Waititi. In the new show, which started streaming this past Thursday, Reese brings his unique comedic charm to the role of Steve Bonnet, also known as the Gentleman Pirate. And as always, he's hilarious. So it was just a blast to chat with Reese about his career from the early days of Flight of the Concords to the surreal experience of acting opposite Jim Carrey to his latest stand-up special, Mystic Timebird. This is a really fun one, so let's get to it now. Here's me with Reese Darby. Well, how's it going? Have you been doing a, a ton of uh, a ton of press for this show? Are you are you pressed out yet? Yeah, definitely. I did uh, <laughs> a whole day on Friday, and and I just did a whole day yesterday. So like eight hours yesterday. Oh my god, that sounds exhausting. It's crazy. I mean, they're only sort of small increments, um, and I wasn't repeating myself too much. But yeah, you do start <laughs> to lose your mind. Yeah. Well, this is a big deal. This show, our flag means death. I mean, you're the you're the star of the show. You're the gentleman pirate. So, you know, you got to do it. You got to you got to be out there promoting it, right? I got to do it. You can't hide in your in your in your bedroom uh, for sure. <laughs> no, I'm ready for it. You know, I've, I've I'm it's it's been slowly coming, and now we're just about ready to set sail. So, full steam ahead. I really enjoyed watching the show. I got to see the the first five, I believe, of the of the season, um, and and just really enjoyed the new show. Um, and this character seems perfect for you. I mean, seems made for you. Was it written for you? Do you know, or was it uh, <laughs> was it something? Well, that you, you know, came it's in? a real character. You know, it's a, it's based on a true story. Yeah. So Steed Bonnet uh, was a aristocrat, a very wealthy landowner uh, living in the eighteenth uh, century um, in the Bahamas sorry, Barbados. And he lived during the age of piracy and he, he really was a great reader. So he loved reading his books. He didn't have to do anything else because everything was done for him. He was the, you know, the, the son of a, of a, a, an aristocrat and therefore he is one too. He, uh, he got married. Um, it was all arranged as, as is the way back then with the, the fancy people. And, and then he's, got some kids and he just wasn't happy. So he had a midlife crisis and uh, grabbed some of his cash and went down to the docks, bought a ship and then uh, installed a library into the ship. Yes. <laughs> took all his clothing and um, all his fancy garments, hired a crew, paid them a wage and then hit the high seas for adventure. Uh, so, you know, it's it's a pretty ridiculous story but it really happened so i think i got cast because you know you, this is the hero but in this in a way you, you kind of you have to question his morals leaving his family behind like that and and um and deciding to you know enter the world of uh, certain death 
My name's Steed. I'll be your robber here today. Oh! Fish. OK. Oh. What's back here? We're just fishermen. Aha! What's this? Yeah. Some men are born to be pirate captains. Others learn on the job. Watch my buttons. Me? Well, I'm a pretty solid mix of both. Yes. Tell them what happened here today. Take care of the plan. Adios. Good luck with your fishing. Did you relate to that uh, desire at all to, you know, abandon your family and, and escape onto the high seas? Does that appeal to you at all? Yeah, absolutely. I think we all think about that now and again, you know, <laughs> especially when you get to a midlife situation, you think, is this it? Uh, gosh, I'm running out of life here. Maybe I can just suddenly do a, <laughs> uh, a an abrupt right turn and take off and, and, and live again. And of course, you never really uh, do it. Some people do, but not many. And this is obviously someone who did. Normally, you just go and buy a, um, a ridiculous car or uh, what have you. And it seems to be certainly a, a, a male thing as well. I don't know what it's about, but we you kind of want to go back to being in your 20s again. Um, the key is just to keep busy. And I think you know, poor old Steve Bonnet wasn't busy. It was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but and it also he just he was obviously a dreamer, um, which which most of us are in the in the arts. You know, we we dream and we imagine and uh, we play act. And I'm definitely guilty of all of those things: putting on costumes, pretending I'm someone else. I love it. So uh, it's escapism. Yeah, I was uh, listening to another interview you did um, where you talked about that you you joined the army uh, early on in your life, partly partly because of the costumes, right? <laughs> yeah, I do. I mean, I, I from the age of twelve, I started wearing uniforms. Uh, the Air Training Corps I was in, and then the Army Cadets, uh, and I would go down once a week, and uh, we'd do drill, would march around, and learn basic tactics. Uh, and things like that. And then I joined the regular army uh, through the cadet school. Um, and then I became a signals operator. So I was a communications electronics operator, driving around in Land Rovers, putting up antennas and, and uh, you know, fidgeting with dials and doing Morse code and things like that. It was just adventure. You know, I was like uh, 17 when I joined the regular force um, and I was only in for four years. I kind of grew out of it really. I, I um, started getting interest getting into girls and stuff and thought oh i don't want to I, I miss my i miss my girlfriend my 19 year old girlfriend i don't want to be away driving around in these army vehicles and digging holes because that's what we did we just dug holes a lot and uh we kept fit and i got some good friends from it but that was that was a that was a, a little life for me until i decided to move on from it um and get into university and 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 then through uni got into what I was supposed to do, which was obviously uh, entertain and do comedy. Yeah. I was wondering how you, how you got into comedy. Cause I think I didn't, you know, I didn't realize from everything I've seen you do on screen that you really did start in live performance and stand up, And that's been, you know, this consistent part of your career for quite a while now. So how did you first get into doing comedy? It was in, it was in uh, university and college. Yeah, that's right. Um, college, as you say over here, uh, basically, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I joined a comedy club. So they have these clubs and societies uh, at college um, and, you know, like the chess club or whatever it is. I mean, that's the, you get that right down in, in, in high school and stuff. But uh, at school, the schools I went to, um, that kind of stuff wasn't really provided. So entering the university world, um, there was a, I remember there was a day uh, where everyone came along and everyone tried to sell their clubs uh you know and there was desks everywhere and there was a comedy club um and i was walking along and a guy yelled out hey it must have been the way i was walking hey you'd be, you should join us <laughs> <laughs> and so i went over and i thought well you know i've been laughed at my whole life i was always the class clown and so of course i was intrigued and uh, so i signed up and that turned out to be a um a great way to meet people that's what these clubs and societies are for they're just you know like-minded people hanging out once a week so we we wrote sketches and we put on a show um and that was called the capping review we did that every year and that was a huge show you'd put an, on in front of the the whole university and all the friends and family would turn up hundreds of people <laughs> <laughs> and uh so yeah i kind of caught the bug from there really and then went into town and started, um, doing comedy. I joined, um, 
a, a duo, or formed a duo, I should say, with a, with a friend of mine called Grant, and we were called Recently Granted, and that was our comedy it's duo. Clever. Very <laughs> clever name. Um, one of the cleverest things I've done. <laughs> we did music and, and sketch, and then we, we sort of went around some of the local pubs and said, hey, can we perform here? Um, we'll do it for free. If you want to give us a beer, that would be optimal. Um, and... And that was just the time in New Zealand when stand-up comedy was just sort of kicking off. There was a uh, a new comedy club opening up in Auckland. Uh, but before then, you know, it was more of a variety act thing. There was a couple of comedians. There was some, uh, you know, musical comedian acts that were sort of doing bits here and there, but there was very, very um, far and few between. There wasn't an industry as such. So yeah, was I, was, really... I was wondering about that. I mean, do you feel like the it's very different, the stand-up comedy world, the scene in, in New Zealand even now from how it is here in the States? Yeah, it was a hell of a lot smaller. And back then it was almost non-existent. You know, you could you could uh, count the uh, the amount of people on your hands that were getting into it. And most other people would go, why are you guys wasting your time? Get a proper job. <laughs> uh, but now, of course, it's quite a healthy little industry. You know, we've got... Um, uh comedy uh panel tv shows a lot of the comics are all on uh, radio and things like that and they're they're all they're, they're becoming celebrities uh so in that short time i guess i say short time it looks like it's probably about 20 over 20 years now in that space of time uh has gone from strength to strength and of course you know people like myself and flight of the concords and and Tyka and uh things like that have um have really made waves overseas internationally and that's helped sort of burgeon the scene back home and and made it like a viable option for people to 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 make money and um see the world yeah this this new show is your just your latest collaboration with Taika Waititi who you know has gone on to do a lot of really big things. Um, how did you first meet him? When did you first uh, encounter each other? So that would have been back in New Zealand, probably about 20 years ago um, during a comedy festival. So we started doing comedy festivals. That was the next thing once the comedy club opened up. And, and we, we, we have, we've always done an international festival every year, bringing in comedians from all over the, the world. Uh, and so the local acts would put things together as well. And we'd have to, we wouldn't automatically get in. We'd have to sort of show we were good enough. And um, yeah, I met uh, Taika back in those days. He was in a, in a duo with Jermaine uh, from the Concords. Yeah, they were called the Humor Beasts. And they did <laughs> really fantastic, weird sketch stuff on stage. And uh, they ended up taking their show to Edinburgh at the same time I did, um, as well as the Concords. They, so he, Jermaine took two shows. Oh, wow. And, um, <laughs> and there was another group called the Naked Samoans who are also fantastic. And, and they're still, they're still around. They, uh, also went to Edinburgh. Um, and so at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which is the, which is the big one in Scotland. So we sort of were completely all out of our depth, but uh, used each other to for support. And um, uh, we did each other's flyering. We couldn't afford technicians, so um, we could have helped each other out there as well, you know, doing the lights and the sounds and things like that. Um, and so that's where we kind of started our brotherhood, really, of us against the world. Um, <laughs> and in that same time, the flight of the Concords really became a cult success. Uh, and then I got linked to them uh, pretty much immediately when Jermaine asked me to uh, play the band manager for a a radio pilot for the BBC. And that's how it kind of kicked yeah, off. So really. it, that, it started as a radio show, not a, not a TV show. That's right. Yeah. It was on, it was on the BBC radio. We did six episodes and that's all still available. You can track that down. I tell you what, working with these two, there's uh, certainly a lot of great stories I can tell you. It was a, it was the weekend uh, before we came over here actually, and uh, we wanted to have one more practice. You know, uh, they both turned up on my doorstep, and we're all set to go. We had the uh, amp plugged in and everything, and I looked at uh, looked at Brett, and he had a weird look on his face, and I said, "What's happening here, Brett?" And then he admitted he'd forgotten his guitar. So <laughs> crazy. So it's just. I mean, this is the day before we're coming here and he left his guitar at home. Oh, man. I mean, obviously I've embellished that story a little bit. 
my character was different. It was called Brian Nesbitt back then. I named him myself, uh, and then <laughs> they decided to change the name when we turn it into a TV show. But it was about them. It was about them making it in England as opposed to the US. Um, and so that that was a whole lot of fun. It was kind of my idea right from the beginning through the the duo, and then my own solo stand up after that was always to get to comedy acting. That's what I really loved. Um, you know, I do stand up, but if you watch it, it is me usually playing characters or telling stories and becoming the characters in those stories and using a lot of physical theater to, to, um, to get my point across. It's, it's certainly a unique style of, of stand up. And so, yeah, my goal was to eventually, hopefully, um, act with others. That's, that's, <laughs> what I really love is is being able to improvise and make comedy up on the spot. Use scripts as well, obviously, but create um, a show with 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 uh, yeah a whole bunch of people. So, how did it happen that Flight of the Concords went from this you know little radio show to an HBO show? And and what was your reaction at the time when you realized that you were going to be part of that? Yeah, they they really hit it off. Edinburgh was the key, and then um, because scouts come to that festival from all over the world including the u.s they then got to do the aspen comedy festival which isn't a thing anymore but back in the day that was a big deal they got invited to that and that's it was there that they were approached by uh a number of networks um i think some of the like uh, nbc or cbs one of those ones as well as hbo and they had they had a few people um you know banging on their door asking for a, um, a, a, a pilot pitch for their, for a show. And so they had a few options. Now they went, ended up going with HBO as why wouldn't you um, <laughs> just a lot more freedom to create and, and not have too many uh, people breathing down your neck and changing what you do uh, because of the nature of it being of, of the, of, you know, of HBO. Uh, and so they ended up getting, um, yeah, they got to make a pilot and they decided to call, call back on me. I was, I was in the UK just back on the stand up circuit at the time. Uh, and they said, Hey, come over and be in the, in the TV version of this thing. And I went, and I really, I was shocked because I thought if they're going to make it in America, they're not going to want me alongside them. They'll have, uh, they'll have a, a US manager managing them with an American voice, you know, um, <laughs> but their co-creator, uh, also, uh, flagged me, uh, that's James Bobin. Um, he, he decided, you know, for one reason or another that my voice, uh, and my, my style was equally as funny and it was, had to be part of the package. So yeah, next thing you know, I agree. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on a plane and, and I'm in New York and we're making it. Well, yeah. I mean, I have to tell you, first of all, Flight of the Concords was an incredibly formative show for me. I think it came out right after I graduated college and was living in New York, um, you know, with roommates for the first time. So I very much related to a lot of sort of what was going on in their world. Um, but then also, I just always thought Murray was was the funniest character on the show and, and loved your performance <laughs> as him. Um, oh, thank you. How would you describe, uh, you know, this character of Murray um and even down to his look, which I, I was curious if that was something that you developed or came from elsewhere, or how did that happen? Um, you know, that he just everything about him was was very unique on TV. I think. Yeah, no, that was that was Jermaine. He decided I should have a goatee. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure. Um, we're going back quite a few years now, but um, he um, he thought that it would make me look a little older because I'm, I'm I'm I need to kind of feel as though I'm older than they are, at least seem like I'm older, more responsible. <laughs> I've got an actual job. Yeah, you've got uh, an office. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm the consulate. I've got an office, and uh, I've got bad '70s suits and things. And this is the <laughs> yeah. kind of thing where people perceive New Zealand as being, you know, a little bit dated in its ideas, uh, just and it's like maybe not quite up with the 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 local the the fast trends of particularly with somehow made and, sense that he would be he'd be dressed like he was from in the 70s yeah for us you know like we only just got star wars and so we're excited we're so far <laughs> from every other country that we're you know behind and, and and technical things as well um of course this isn't true but that's the that makes it funny and <laughs> exactly. so next thing um there i am 
with this uh, with this look, and we, we we made we made use of that joke that um, they thought their characters thought I was a lot older than I actually was, um, and that's in the show as well. I think back then they thought I was forty two when actually I was thirty two. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, um, you mentioned you know the the band meeting uh, scenes, uh, which are so brilliant and so funny um and those were mostly improvised those scenes with the three of you in the in the band meetings yeah they started off scripted and then we realized the way more fun and way more comedy can come out of them when we just make it up so normally there was one thing in the in the band meeting that we had to get to that was you know kept the story going that's why we were having a meeting um and then the rest of it could just be made up and it was really just became, especially in the second season, just a fun test to see how we could crack each other up. And half the time, you know, those two guys would have to go and sit out of the room because they were just laughing so much <laughs> at the stuff I was coming up with. But we we're all guilty of um, of corpsing because, you know, it was uh, it was a fun time. Yeah, I read somewhere that you had to shoot your scene, your side of the scene separately sometimes because they couldn't hold it together. Yeah, I'd be doing it to two empty chairs and I could still <laughs> hear them laughing down by the monitors because I'd be watching it. And I'd say, I can still hear you. You need to leave the building. Otherwise, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those were the days. Item one, fan base. Ways to increase the American fan base. What fan base? The fan base of the band. Well, you mean Mel? Mm. It's not a fan base, it's just a woman. Yeah, but I'm, I'm calling it fan base from now on. It's just easier when I call. Because, you, you know, you say, oh, the fan will be there. Just, you know, they can tell there's only one person. I'm trying to make it look bigger. So base, put base on the end of it. Okay? Well, that sounds good. It sounds better. That's, well, I came up with that. It was such a great show. And I remember being, you know, disappointed when it ended after two seasons. Um, how did, I? and I believe they, it, they, it ended because they they wanted it to end, right? They were kind of done making it. How did you feel about it when it when the show you know went away? I was sad because yeah, you know, I was sort of going from strength to strength. I really uh, loved playing that character, and I really felt that as we went on, uh, it was more about the three of us and not just the the two of them and the and the and the additional characters. And I felt that was that was great. Um, and you know uh they loved writing for my character as well and and so when when they announced that you know that had enough i was like oh okay but you know you can't have too much of a good thing and we were used to watching british shows that really only do two seasons sometimes only do six episodes and then do another six and you're done so you know we weren't sort of um we we're familiar with the american system but we knew this show wasn't going to go on for as long as mash or cheers yeah. <laughs> you know the, the story was pretty much told and they, and and it was really down to the amount of music they had to provide and how much work they had to do yeah seems like it was a it was an ambitious show in that sense when every was. episode had to have this elaborate music video in it yeah they bit off almost more than they could chew so then they ran out of chew <laughs> <laughs> um you know, we we now live in this era where every show that anyone ever loved or anyone ever watched, even if it wasn't that many people, is coming back. Um, and you know, shows are being revived all the time. Could you imagine Flight of the Concords coming back in some form? Always, um, I can always imagine it, um, but it's never up to me, and uh, it's it's up to up to the other two. Um, and and I think I really don't know how they feel about that. I know that they they keep the concords going uh by live touring now and again and you know the world's been turned upside down in the last as we all know um no one's really going to be doing that for a while so um you know you never say never but I, there's definitely no plans we haven't spoken about it for years so it's only it's this this question comes up all the time it's always just people's wishful thinking <laughs> and you know as soon as i say oh yeah you never know uh people start publishing that idea and it doesn't it doesn't help because um if it happens it happens you know but i think you know the idea is you create something it's a great work of art you put it up on the wall you can return to it anytime and then you go on and move and you make other things you know and you can work with those same people which is we do quite a lot and you can create uh things new things and um it's that's just the way it goes people sort of yearn for that same thing or that thing that they really love and they want it back again or they want a new version of it but you totally. know it's never yeah. as good 
And every time they come back, it never works as well. And that's, I mean, I can't think of a single show where, oh, finally they're back again. And they'll end up doing one or two seasons and people go, yeah, not as good as it used to be. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to fall into that trap. I think, I think we're too clever for that. Yeah, definitely not. Um, I had uh, Christian Schall on this podcast not too long ago, who played Mel the Stalker uh, on on Flight of the yeah, Conchords. Yeah, love Kristen. Um, she's so good, and she she talked about how this show, that show really changed her life, and how you know it opened a lot of doors for her, and all of a sudden she was getting recognized on the street, and you know all these <laughs> yeah. things. What did it do for you? Did it did it open doors for you in America? Because that was this was your first you know, time really acting at all, um, let alone, you know, in, in America on HBO. Um, how did it change your career? It was amazing. I mean, I straight away, I got work. I got a movie, you know, between seasons. I got oh, really? A, Which a, one was yeah, that? I did, I did Yes Man with, uh, with oh, Jim yeah. Carrey. I didn't realize that was actually during the, the run of the show. Yeah. That was, yeah, it was unbelievable. I just like, I must have done a good job because <laughs> I was automatically getting Hollywood movies. That must have been uh, surreal to all of a sudden be in a movie with Jim Carrey. I couldn't believe it. Like he was, you know, growing up my comedy idol and I hoped to one day maybe meet the guy, but to be cast alongside him in a, in, a, in my first movie, it was totally surreal. I, I remember watching it and I just kept looking at the screen thinking, wow, it looks like I've been kind of uh, photoshopped into this because that <laughs> can't be happening. <laughs> Hello. Carl, it's your buddy Norman. Well, and your boss, but more your buddy than your boss, right? I guess. So, uh, look, uh, we're kind of short on Saturday staff. Is there any way you could come in? Sure. Nothing I like better than the inside of a bank on a beautiful Saturday. Yeah. Hey, there really is something magical about this place. What was he like to work with? Oh, he's great. He's great. In fact, I saw him the other night. I was down at the Lago, and uh, he just so happened to be there, On and it was a surprise turn up, and we ended up on stage together. But back... <laughs> Yeah, but that's another story. But back back in 2008, he was fully supportive of me. Um, yeah, I was really surprised with uh, the great advice he gave me and the great comments he gave to, to press about me. Um, so, yeah, um, as far as meeting your heroes, he, uh, he stacked up well. Coming up. Reese and I talk about his incredibly fruitful working relationship with Taika Waititi, including a scene-stealing performance in Hunt for the Wilder People, one of my favorites, and their electric screen time together in Our Flag Means Death. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to our conversations with Flight of the Concords co-star Kristen Schaal, as well as interviews with Ricky Gervais, Mindy Kaling, Sasha Baron Cohen, and everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Reese Darby. So going back to uh, your your long you know relationship with uh, Taika Waititi as a director and, and your co-star on this show, um, 
The other movie that I, I wanted to talk about was uh, Hunt for the Wilder People, which I just loved um, and was such a fantastic film, um, such a special movie. Uh, what was your experience like working on that? Because you got to kind of come in just for, for sort of one section of it, but have a very uh, strong presence during that section, I would say. Yeah, so that was so Taika. Um, that was a really special movie uh, for Taika, and it was a um, uh, an adaptation from a, a famous New Zealand book as well. And so they were filming in the winter uh, in in, a, in the middle of New Zealand uh, in the snow for a, a, a big section of it. These are the, these are my memories coming together now. Um, it's amazing how how my brain works. And <laughs> there I am with this part that he said, uh, you know, is going to sort of elevate things when you don't expect it. Uh, and they come across this character. These, you know, they're on the run. Sam Neill uh, is, uh, I think, does he know that I live there? Or no, I think they just come across me. Um, and I'm basically a hermit. Uh, I'm, oh, that's right. Now I'm remembering. It's been a while since I've seen it. I think I find them because I'm dressed as a bush. Remember? Oh, yes. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah, that's a great scene. <laughs> Is it a man or a bush? Bush! Man! <laughs> bush man! <laughs> ah. Hello? I was hoping to run into you too. Well, if you're after the rewards, you can bugger off. We're dangerous. Yeah, we're dangerous. Yeah, and no, I heard about that. Don't worry, I'm not going to capture you. You guys heard of a, a local legend about a guy that lives out here in the bush on his own? They call him Psycho Sam. No? No? Oh, OK. Well, my name's Sam anyway. I'm a friend. <laughs> Go on. So I kind of uh, I kind of approach them as uh, and, and announce who I am, um, Psycho Sam, and please come and stay with me. So they end up uh, sort of escaping um, the police by by hiding out in my in my trailer. Yeah, and of course, I'm fun. a you know off the grid <laughs> conspiracy nut, uh, which was very easy for me to play. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so we did, we had a really, um, we had a lot of fun with that. Taika said I could improvise a lot of stuff. So I, we came up with some really wacky ideas. Uh, Julian Dennison, who played the boy, he actually came up with the track door piece. So I've got to give him credit for that. I think we were in the spa so, one night. He's so good in the, in the movie. Oh, he's brilliant. What a legend. So, um, he, I think we were just, we were, were we in a spa? We we're in some hot pool uh, because it was, it was ski season and we were staying in this hotel nearby. Yeah. So we we're in a hot pool drinking a couple of uh, drinks um, and we were just uh, back and forth with ideas. What if, what if there was a trap door that you had? <laughs> um, and I thought that was fantastic. I, I, he either came up with it or he came up with the idea that there was no, there was only a trap door. Um, and no tunnel. I can't remember. It was one <laughs> yeah. of us, you know, you're back and forth with all these ideas. I don't want to say it was me in case, in case it was someone else, but on the day I just thought with the, with the pressure of leaving. Um, and also I think I did something to, uh, his phone, which ended up meaning that, uh, the police could actually contact us even easier, track us down. Not a very good hermit uh, conspiracy. Yeah. So. I mean, he's, he means well. He's like every character I play. It's kind of, you know, he means well, but um, he's misguided either via exactly. himself or something he's read that's uh, misinformation, which is very prevalent these days. Um, I hope I'm not to blame for all these uh, uh, people out there who've uh, believed too much misinformation. I hope not. Yeah. Fallen down stupid rabbit holes. Uh, if you have people, hey. I'm sorry. Pull yourself out of it, okay? What is Taika like as a director? Now, you've worked with him so many times now. I mean, is he seems like he must have very a giving. unique unique style. Uh, very unique. He likes to really he he loves what he's making. He's so excited about it and he it's an organic process. So he'll continue to create on the day in the moment. And so that gets actors excited and actors who you know have learned their lines and have been doing this for years and have got it down have probably spent 
you know, a good few hours in their hotel room just working on how they're going to say a certain thing. They'll turn up and Taika will go, okay, we're not going to do that now. We'll change it to this. Or, you know, so, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. so, but knowing that that's the case, um, it's also fun for actors who aren't uh, used to improvising to get this opportunity to, to, change, uh, to change it up. And, you know, you'll always do what's on the script as well, but if there's time and if he wants to change it, he can he can change it up. And he'll even show you how he wants it done. Um, so, you know, he's a real, real captain, but it's all done in very, um, in a very friendly and um, passionate manner. And so I've been working with him and have the same sense of humor. So I uh, kind of know where we're going with things and I'll be able to give options as well and give ideas and he'll be really excited about those options and he'll take it. And so there's a lot of like, Hey, try this or say this over the, you know, from the, from behind the camera. And I go, okay, I'll try that. And I'll go, what about, <laughs> actually I've got, I just had an idea. Cause I, I love getting ideas off ideas. I'm one of these guys that kind of does that. And so, um, you know, that kind of organic process of making something as fresh and real as possible in the moment is um is i think how we get to those those magic moments in those films is there an example from our flag means death of of something where it changed on the fly or or some idea that came up in the moment that really uh heightened things uh for the show um yeah well for him i mean the in the pilot um the where he shows uh where, where steed shows um the, the the different parts of the ship and the activities that take place uh, for example, um, the the music room, the jam, doing the jam sessions, or the sports arena, yes. and things like that. <laughs> None of that was in the script. It was there, there was there there was nothing in the script that said we should go around and show what parts of the ship we do things in. Uh, that was just a fun idea that we just came up with. He he decided we should do it because it, it really sh- it gets to, you get to see that that we've um, that we've been at sea for a while. And that there's already unity amongst amongst the crew, and that also fun is to be had. We're not; it's not like a um, a ship full of hardworking, grumpy people who can't wait to loot and kill. Uh, it's quite the opposite, <laughs> and so it really sort of gave a good uh, insight as to what I was like as a as a leader at that point. Now, every pirate captain captains pirates differently. Traditionally, piracy is a culture of abuse. Floggings, keel haulings, and my thought is, why? And also, what if it weren't like that? For example, if your average pirate doesn't steal, he doesn't eat. That's a lot of mental pressure. So, I pay my crew a salary, same wage every week, no matter what. Of course, it took them a while to come round to the idea. But I've included some amenities on the ship that I think will please them. Rec Center. Oh, what is your fucking game? State-of-the-art ensuite. Non-humans. The ballroom. Jam room. And, of course, a full library. The crew is free to borrow books whenever. So far, you're the only one to take me up on it. Well, I'm the only crew member who can read. That's not. Is that true? And then, of course, there's there's scenes further down the track, um, particularly with him and I. If you see the, I know you've you've only seen the first five, but but there's some there where yeah, it, yeah, the, he's starting to be t- in it more in, in those yeah in those ep- later yeah. episodes. When it's the two of us, we'll play around a bit, and and also we we improvised a bit with the dramatic side of things, which you know we haven't done a lot of dramatic acting, but we dig a lot deeper in this show to get into the psyche of these two characters who, uh, you know, have backgrounds that um, require answers, you know, and so why are they here and why do they want to be in each other's world? Um, so that was, that was fun to kind of get, get more into the underneath the fingernails on, on these, on these characters. Yeah. I want to just touch on a little bit of your, uh, latest stand-up special, Mystic Timebird, which I really, really enjoyed um, as well, um, came out. I think you know pretty recently. Um, you uh, you joke in that special about uh, you know living in LA, even though you don't particularly uh, enjoy it. Um, 
what what was why was that something that you you know wanted to talk about on stage and and the uh, maybe the differences between Los Angeles and your your home in New Zealand? Yeah, I always get questioned um, by particularly New Zealanders, but actually you know uh, people in the UK and Ireland and stuff about why I would live in LA, you know, and they don't think about well, obviously you know for the for the industry and for what I want to do, this is the place to be because. I'm connected to the agency and the, uh, and the, I have my manager and everything here. And, and this is where, you know, everything comes out from, but life in general, you know, is you have to kind of go, well, uh, I'm not turning my back on New Zealand. It's, it's, it's a much, uh, more beautiful and fun place, a better community to live in. So there's some crazy differences, you know, and yeah, so that's why I sort of go into that because I, I, I was in Galway at that point too by the way when i was doing the special which is a absolutely beautiful town and you know and and here i am sort of raving on about sort of oh oh dear me having to live in in los angeles <laughs> you know uh where there's where there's you know it's it, it's hard to find a, a footpath um so i've exaggerated the truth on it all um but it really is there's nothing quite like where i'm living now with just thousands of cars everywhere and freeways and everything like that, as opposed to a little cobblestone village where, you know, a uh, fishing village where there's musicians walking along the streets playing <laughs> lutes, you know, and uh, everyone's having a, a lovely dram uh, down at the pub. And it's just such a different world. And I question myself why, you know, every time I go to places like that, or even back in New Zealand, why, why wouldn't I be there and living there? Um, and that's why I return as much as I can because I love it. And it's just that um, it's become less viable for me to sort of uh, keep my career going from from that place yeah. because well, I'm so so far removed from everything, right? Yeah, exactly. And saying that, someone like Sam Neill has managed to live in New Zealand, you know, and work. And then when he gets his jobs, go and travel to them. But he's very in a very different circumstance to me i've got the two kids and they're in school here um and they're in a great school here in 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 los angeles thanks to their mum who's who does all the uh the clerical work <laughs> yes uh and very you know, important mothers do so yeah we remind them all the time you know you might not be back at the at the shire it might be hard to get fish and chips <laughs> But uh, the opportunities you're getting uh, through the education you're getting at this school um, is, is second to none. I mean, honestly, it feels like a university, the school they're going to. I won't say which school it is, but it's, it's um, you know, they're, they're, and, they, and they know that. We keep hammering it into them. Um, <laughs> and so that from here, you can, you can make yourself um, available into the world at a, at, a, at a good level. So lucky you. The other story I love in the special is uh, about the, your audition for Westworld. Who's heard of Westworld? It's a, it's a pretty cool show on HBO. I'd never heard of it, but at this stage, I was uh, in the taxi on the way to the audition when I was kind of looking at the bit of paper, you know. Uh, not very prepared, I know, but I just did see in the synopsis, it said, cowboy robots. So I thought, well, <laughs> could be in with a chance there, you know. So this is what happened. I got in there. I didn't read anything more about it. I thought, I just, you know, got in, and the guy goes, next. And so I came through the door. Here's my audition. I came through the door. Is that a typical Hollywood experience for you, or uh, is that how things normally go? Or do you uh, was that a unique experience? No, I do get big auditions. I haven't had many for a while um, since so since getting the, uh, the the pirate show, but um, probably because I'm not available now. Uh, but but I did get a few, uh, and that was that was one of them. Um, and and yeah, Westworld. Also, what was the other one? True Detective. I got. Oh yeah, got oh, that, that. would have been interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it just cracks me up because I go in and, you know, I, I, I think they're starting to know now that, you know, you're going to get what I, um, bring and I'm not really going to put on a voice or, or change myself in too many ways. There's just so <laughs> many 
other actors out there that are doing great American accents. Most of them are Australian and they're brooding or whatever. And they can, you know, and they're good looking. That's, that's not me. I'm, I'm quirky. And usually I get parts of someone who's from another world and doesn't quite understand earth. (laughs) (laughs) And your voice is so distinctive and such a big part of, uh, of who you are as an actor. I think that to, to hide it would just be folly. Yeah, I think so. I th- I, th- I made the point now where I think if I did put on uh, an American accent, people wouldn't buy it. They'd be like, "I'm not. <laughs> no, I'm not watching that." You know, where's where's the voice we uh, we we know and love? <laughs> <laughs> so before we wrap up here, uh, we have our final segment called the first laugh. So I'm going to ask you about a bunch of firsts in your career and uh, in comedy. Uh, so to start going all the way back, do you remember the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid growing up? Oh, that's a good one. I mean, I would probably say um, Monty Python, uh, yeah, and it would probably be um, the argument sketch, uh, the argument clinic, it's called, uh, where, um, well, you should know it if you're into comedy. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to recite it now, <laughs> but it's it's one people, of those people ones. People can that, look it up. Yeah, if, you have, if you're into comedy and you don't know about the argument sketch by the, the Pythons, then uh, – Please hurry up and, and check it out. Do you remember the first time that you knew you were funny, that you had the ability to make other people laugh? Yeah, that, I would have been about five. And um, I remember I was at school. So it was probably my first year of school. And I, I think I used to, because my mum was always funny and humor was always something in our family. And I remember it was a nice feeling to make people laugh. And when I was at school, um, uh, how did it go? It was, I remember getting the words comedian and chameleon mixed up because I was very much into animals, always have been. But when I was little, I loved, um, I loved animals. I used to collect these little, uh, cards, uh, wheat bix cards with all these animals on that, you know, the, the cards that are in a cereal packet and they had all the specifications of the animals. And I used to, yeah. And, um, I, yeah. So the chameleon was my favorite lizard. I loved, or still do, uh, because they change colors. They, um, can change who they are. It's almost like they're a performer themselves putting on a different outfit and they've got those big googly eyes and I related to this thing. And so I remember at school, um, the teacher said, what do you, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, to all to the class and I said I, I want to be a chameleon and I was thinking of being a comedian <laughs> but I said chameleon and then everyone laughed and um <laughs> and then I realized my mistake and then I went over and stood next to the door and asked if I was changing colors <laughs> so yeah that that was sort of what those things and I remember um like a girl came up to me at lunchtime and she's and she um reminded me that that was really funny and then I I think that was you have those catalyst moments where you go okay this is, this is what I'm going to do now. I'm a funny, I'm a funny guy. And so I then started to disrupt more and more in class um, from that point. Once you started performing comedy on stage, doing stand-up, do you remember the first joke or bit that really worked, that really connected with people that you could go back to every time that, that you really liked? Yeah. Um, so for me, it was, it was doing impressions. And uh, one of my earliest pieces was definitely doing an impression of a T-Rex dinosaur. Uh, so I do the little arms and I do this, you know, this funny walk and this mouth and then, then do a big roar. And I turned that into a piece because the IMAX theater was a brand new thing back then. And they were playing this uh, T-Rex movie. It was called, I think, T-Rex 3D because it was in 3D. And, um, so I did a I did a bit about this T Rex being in 3D, and it also I did an impression of my granddad, uh, which uh, was just an impression of an old man sort of hunched over, and he was very grumpy. And I told the story about how I went to this movie with him, and he couldn't understand how to use the 3D glasses. And then I <laughs> and then I did a piece about this dinosaur leaving, literally leaving the screen and chasing us down the street. Uh, so it was it was a physical piece, and then from that moment on, I knew that if I ever did an impression of the of the uh, of the dinosaur or or this granddad, um, that people would laugh at my <laughs> my physicality change and and my voice change. And so I in, then ended up 
just using those two characters and, and popping them into various stories for the next 10 years. Yeah. And something you've continued to do doing animal noises and, and funny noises uh, throughout. Yeah. I haven't done T-Rex or the granddad for quite some time, but they, they were, they were big on the list. And this was before I started doing sound effects. I, 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 um, that sort of came shortly after that. I, I realized I could do machinery noises and then helicopters and, sirens and all sorts of stuff uh, it just sort of stuff that sort of came organically as i told stories uh, i just naturally felt like doing the noise as well just to describe what was happening do you have a favorite sound effect that you can do uh my my favorite is probably the most ridiculous which is just a um, creaky door opening so i'll give you that now it, it can be as long as i like but i won't do it too long the longer <laughs> you do it the funnier it is but it's just like this this is an old creepy door opening <laughs> well, I felt like I was really there. That was incredible. Very creepy. I mean, that's that certainly needs an oil. <laughs> and finally, I like to give comedians a chance to shout out other comedy that's making them laugh right now. So what's the last piece of comedy or something you've seen recently that really made you laugh? Uh, well, I really loved um, Reservation Dogs, which is uh, one fantastic. Of, yeah, yeah. fantastic show. I, I, I love the tone of it and, and uh, the comedy, the, the way they let it breathe and seeing all these uh, actors that we hadn't seen before these young people um, completely nailing it. So that, that, that would be, that would be something I'd, I'd, if you haven't seen that, I'd definitely see that. Yeah, it's a, definitely. Tyker produces it as well. And so if you're into our kind of humor, it, it fits into that mold. Yeah, that's a great recommendation for sure. Uh, well, Reese, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I've really loved your, your comedy and your work for so long, going back to Flight of the Concord. So this was a, a lot of fun for me. Yeah, no, it was fun, man. Thank, thank you for hanging out with me. Well, that was just delightful. Thank you again to Reese Darby for hanging out and letting me fanboy over your performance in Flight of the Concords. The first three episodes of Our Flag Means Death are available to stream now on HBO Max, with the remaining seven episodes premiering over the next few weeks. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at Claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 